thrill is gone. Halloween films need to rise from the dead. As a genre, comedy has not adequately replaced Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. In spite of annual efforts to revive film noir, modern film producers use way too much color and money to recapture the essence of that unique style. But no genre has lost so much to its past as the thriller. Thrillers. We don't even use the term anymore, except to talk about a Michael Jackson album. Hollywood still makes horror films, and science fiction, and B-movie producers are notorious for their slasher films. From time to time, audiences still get a monster movie. Cloverfield being an excellent example of a recent monster movie. Still, most modern creature features have budgets that loom much larger than the behemoths depicted in those full-scale spectaculars. No, the thrill is gone. Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee made their share of laughably bad films. They also produced a brand of movie that we rarely find, even on The Late Show, these days. Made-for-TV productions once included an unknown director named Steven Spielberg telling the story of an ordinary man dueling with a menacing trucker. Now, made-for-TV is a buzzword warning us that the latest sensationalist headline, date rape, husbands leading double lives, women who love too much, have been turned into a primetime special complete with Jackie Collins' production values. On Fridays at midnight in the 1970s, even with only three or four channels to choose from, you could often, if not always, find a thriller. The quality ranged from Roger Corman's series of Edgar Allan Poe B-movies to Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. You know, I never made it all the way to the end of Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. You show a plotting sort of overdramatic Grand Guignol-style film at, starting in at midnight and have it run with commercial breaks over two hours, maybe three hours even, yeah, I'm not going to make it to the end of that. Creepy, yes, but one of these days I'll actually have to sit down and give it a proper viewing. Corman's B-movies, to me, much more impressive. Corman would actually go, from time to time, on the set of a film that had just finished with a big budget. Uh, I believe The Lion in Winter had completed its primary shooting, and they were about to take down the sets of that Oscar-winning film when Corman said, hey, my group will take care of the demolition for you if you don't mind me using the sets you've built for, you know, a couple of weeks. And over the course of 14 to 18 shooting days, he would shoot a movie set in a similar time frame. But instead of an elaborate, well-cared-for castle, he would shoot something in a castle that was falling down and, and shoot scenes that would you know, appear in movies like Lygia or The Fall of the House of Usher. But unlike the late, late movies that I remember was on it when I was a kid, it now seems that the only reruns that are available are carbon copy sequels under the headings Friday the 13th or worse. In an homage to what we've lost, I'd like to offer a six-pack of Halloween movies. Without exception, these films are rated PG or are of current PG-13 caliber. Some were made for TV. Some were produced before the MPAA rating system. They are clean, so to speak, when compared to the work of modern horror directors like Dario Argento. Most are low-budget and hard to find. I have managed to acquire the majority of them, but I'm still looking to scare up a copy of one, and that's where I'll start. A Cold Night's Death. Summit Laboratory, come in, come in. Base to Summit, are you ready? Yes, yes, God, please, I'm here, I'm here! Oh, I'm Base here! Please, listen, oh, please! Right, you receive me. 
You don't hear me. You don't hear me. Get me out. You don't know. Oh, God, you can't hear me. You don't hear me. The radio's dead. Don't you see? The radio's dead. Don't you see what happened? I told you. I told you. And nobody listened. Nobody listened. January 17, Base Research Station, Ryan Horner, Project Director. Today is our fifth day without radio contact with Dr. Vogel. Previous attempts to reach Summit Laboratory have failed because of continuing snowstorms. I fear for Vogel's well-being. Before we lost transmission, his radio contacts were becoming increasingly sporadic and irrational, to the point that he reported having conversations with such figures as Napoleon and Alexander the Great. I'm deeply concerned that he may not be feeding the monkeys and chimps, nor recording the results of our altitude experiments on them. If this is the case, the four years of research for the space program will have been wasted. Our promised delivery date is less than three months away, and we must salvage the project. Doctors Robert Jones and Frank Inari arrived from the university this morning to relieve Vogel and continue the experiments. I am much relieved that this particular team was made available to finish the project, as it was their research in stress situations man might encounter in space exploration that is the basis of our program. The storm has calmed enough for Val Adams to fly them in along with a new chimp for experiment control. I must confess my deep concern as to what they will find. A couple of years after Spielberg's duel began to distinguish ABC's Tuesday night movie of the week as must-see TV, the same time slot featured A Cold Night's Death, sometimes known today as Chill Factor, but less often I would think since a more modern film has been made with that title. With even fewer characters than Duel, and much lower than the low-budget norm, A Cold Night's Death featured Eli Wallach and Robert Culp in sparring roles as research scientists sent to... What at the time I thought was an Arctic laboratory when I first saw it, but instead it's more of a remote mountaintop, high-altitude laboratory. Either way, they're fighting the elements of snow and wind and isolation. In particular, these two have been sent to replace a team of scientists who have mysteriously disappeared. In addition to restoring order at the outpost, they also seek clues to the mystery. Bolstered by strong acting and a snowy claustrophobic setting, a Cold Night's Death is a triumph as an icy character study with a chilling ending. I did a review once of A Cold Night's Death and put it on Simply Read at www.simplysyndicated.com. A Cold Night's Death is actually available on YouTube, cut up into 10-minute slices. Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but you know, we try our best. I'd like to pick up on my list with Carnival of Souls. Hey, you want a bag, huh? Grab it up. Action you've never seen. Races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture making. Carnival of Souls, 
This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the carnival of souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the carnival of souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Many critics identify Night of the Living Dead as the transitional film that supplanted psychological terror with gore. George Romero openly acknowledges an inspirational debt to a Kansas independent filmmaker named Herc Harvey. In 1962, Harvey introduced the zombie-like character to Romero in Carnival of Souls. Harvey's film skips the gore, instead using surrealism to create a horror film where the zombie may be real or a ghost. Harvey's ghoul doesn't need to cannibalize or carve up his victim. His pursuit of the tragic heroine provides all the necessary scares. Carnival of Souls was the last great black-and-white thriller before Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead, of course, upped the ante and changed the rules forever. Invasion of the Body Snatchers Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! Come from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. It's whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. This isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks... unused. The sensational star discovery of The View from Poppy's Head. 
And now an undreamed-of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! In 1956, Don Siegel directed a thriller that most of us have surely seen. The released version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is radically different from the film Siegel delivered to the studio. Ironically, the director's cut, never released, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a great Hollywood rarity. It's shorter than the theatrical version and doesn't contain any additional footage. Call it addition by subtraction. But the original beginning and ending of Siegel's film were so unsettling to test audiences that additional footage was added to make the plot all right. To see the director's cut of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, fast forward past the train station introduction, mute the narration. Begin the movie with the doctor arriving at his office. And end the movie when the doctor is chased onto the highway and helplessly waves his arms for someone, anyone, to pull over and listen to him. Mid-1950s America had evolved into both the Cold War and the Red Scare. Sputnik would soon be orbiting overhead. Reefer Madness had long ago implied that certain menacing plants could take over the minds of America's youth. The abrupt ending that Siegel had planned must have seemed positively conspiratorial to many viewers. Unfortunately, all we have to work with today is the watered-down version. Careful use of the remote control is the only way to recreate the movie that Invasion of the Body Snatchers was meant to be. The Scarlet Claw, or perhaps Sherlock Holmes and the Scarlet Claw. Gentlemen, my wife has just been found dead, her throat torn out. So you proceeded to fall in the bog, eh? Fall? I was put into the blasted thing, pushed by the most ghastly apparition. Judge Brisson, if you'll answer a few questions, I may be able to save your life. I have the fullest confidence in my own defenses, and I will not trade them for any theories of Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Under the circumstances, I'm helpless to prevent your death. Throw your revolver on the floor in front of you and raise your hand, Sherlock Holmes. Look out, Watson! As an extinct genre, thrillers are so far gone that we may no longer recognize the adventures of Sherlock Holmes as thrillers. The Scarlet Claw fits the bill, though. While The Hound of the Baskervilles has even stronger supernatural leaning, The Scarlet Claw deserves special distinction from the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce series because it was an original. 
Without the help of an Arthur Conan Doyle plotline, The Scarlet Claw nevertheless brings all the atmosphere and mystery to the story of grisly murders committed on Canadian marches by a legendary creature with deadly claws. Not only does The Scarlet Claw offer plenty of suspicious characters, the killer proves to be a master of disguise. Even after Holmes identifies the criminal, the suspense only escalates as the detectives try to determine whom he's impersonating. Alfred Hitchcock could not have improved the scene in the judge's house. I'll say no more. The Other. Not The Others, with Nicole Kidman. The Other, from the 1970s. Life was good to the Perrys of Pequot Landing. For 300 years, they lived in this place. The generations were rich with love. And the most beloved of all were the twins, Niles and Holland. That summer, they shared a secret life in the apple cellar, in the nursery. features a dysfunctional family with an evil twin concealing a dark macabre secret, it would be natural to assume that the plot comes from a soap opera. The Other, on the other hand, is a 1972 psychological thriller based on Thomas Tryon's novel. 
As both a writer and actor, Tryon knew how to fill his story with ideal visual elements for filming. Amazingly, at least by modern standards, the movie is both frightening and PG-rated. As a movie like The Sixth Sense capably illustrated, movies about children grappling with evil always seem more frightening. The Exorcist is a more graphic example. Although many elements of the other may seem contrived 40 years later, much of the technique in Robert Mulligan's film were still fresh at the time. Like too many thrillers, though, it loses much of its impact on repeat viewings. The other is a better movie when you don't know what to expect. Of course, it is broadcast so rarely, most audiences will be seeing the movie anew. And I'll do my best to stop here and avoid any spoilers. Come to the asylum. Come to the asylum. To get killed. Come to the asylum. Yes, I think the time has come to take violence toys away from you. To get killed. Come to the asylum. To get killed. Asylum. Now you hurry and get dressed, and I'll go down the hall and, uh... Asylum, starring Peter Cushing, Britt Eklund, Herbert Lom, Patrick McGee, Barry Morris, Barbara Parker, Robert Powell, Charlotte Rampling, Sylvia Sims, Richard Todd, James Villiers. Asylum. <laughs> Asylum. The most exciting film you'll ever see. My next entry is the horror anthology film as a genre. And I'm going to cite Asylum, The House That Dripped Blood, and Trilogy of Terror. Any one of these films would make an excellent coda to a Halloween film festival. They are anthology films, telling three or more different stories featuring different characters. That makes it possible for me to play Baron von Frankenstein and put together the parts to give life to an altogether new monster. Movie, that is. Dead of Night, the British horror anthology from 1945, would stand alone quite nicely as this final entry. I'm going to cheat, though, and pull parts from these three 1970s color films. The opening segment of Asylum shows a new psychiatrist meeting the terminal cases in the ward of a remote mental hospital. His first case poses the question, why would a woman try to chop herself repeatedly with an axe? In a story that owes a great debt to Pose the Black Cat or the Telltale Heart, the killer's conscience literally comes crawling out to haunt her. This house is full of sounds. The loudest is your heart pounding in the night. The softest is the sound of terror. In this house, terror waits for you in every room. Vixens and victims. You'll find them all in the house that dripped blood. 
The House That Dripped Blood opens with one of the most frightening 25-minute films ever made. A writer with a Stephen King mentality rents a remote house, purported to be haunted, in order to arrest his writer's block. As he creates a gruesome story about a strangler running amok, the writer begins to see one of his characters come to life. This is a movie where I, as a child, made one of the biggest mistakes you could possibly make in a thriller. I stopped watching partway through because I was scared. Now, in my defense, I may have only been 10 years old at the time. I don't know. But not knowing how this story resolved itself meant that my imagination was resolving the story in a myriad of terrifying ways. One of the most important things to do with thrillers, or for that matter, with horror films, is to see them through. It may be a mistake to go, but it's certainly a mistake to leave early. Trilogy of Terror, with its devil doll character, is probably the most famous of all of these Halloween recommendations. It was the triumphant moment in Karen Black's Tour de Force 1975 television anthology film. Trilogy of Terror provides the perfect ending to my spliced anthology. Asylum starts up with a woman who believes in African spiritualism, and Trilogy of Terror ends with one such spirit running amok. Like A Cold Night's Death, where two actors sustain the plot, the Devil Doll story from Trilogy of Terror features Black almost exclusively. The antique warrior doll she buys on the street comes to life and only has one instinct, to hunt and kill. Her life and death struggle, although comic and ridiculous, has earned cult status as one of the most horrifying short films ever made. Trilogy of Terror carried a parental advisory warning during its first broadcast. That is typical of many made-for-TV movies nowadays. In the mid-1970s, though, parental discretion advised almost always meant that the TV station was broadcasting a theatrical film. As the only slasher film in this Halloween six-pack, it is fitting that the most graphic movie in this collection was never screened for the MPAA to rate. For all the stabbing and screaming, perhaps my favorite moment in the film, or at least the one I find truly the most frightening from a thriller's perspective, is as simple as a phone call. This is Amelia, Mom. I'm sorry I acted the way I did. I think we should spend the evening together just the way we planned. It's kind of late, though. Why don't you come by my place and we'll go from here? No, I'm all right. Good. I'll be waiting for you.
music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>